Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the People Processes Podcast. I'm your host, Rami Alijil, and I am really excited today to bring you Thomas. Thomas Veeman is the co-founder of Conversati Global. They upgrade people for the future of work. Thomas has worked in the United States, Germany, Switzerland, India, and Thailand. He's lived in in Mexico City since 2012. He draws on his international background to teach executive courses on emotional and cultural intelligence. Thomas is especially passionate about using experiential and narrative methods to help teams bridge cultural and communication divides. I'm excited to have you on here, Thomas. The pleasure is mine as well, Rami. Well, Thomas, the first question I ask all of our guests, you know, not everybody dresses up as a kid for as a uh, HR person or a business owner. Uh, It's not the most common uh, life choices that get us here. How did you wind up where you are now? How did you get into this crazy world? Well, that's a great question. And it's a long story. As a kid, I certainly never thought I would uh, I would do anything related to business, actually. I grew up moving back and forth between Switzerland and the United States. My mom's Swiss and my father's an American. And I think it's kind of like that was the the era before you had cell phones. But if we imagine it in in today's world, it's kind of like every year I had to switch the SIM card in my my brain to, to, to work with a different set of values, a different set of rules for how to behave. And, and that just was normal to me. I learned later on and, and even growing up that that's not necessarily normal for everyone else. If I fast forward, I, I thought I was going to be a pilot because uh, pilots, they travel a lot and that would allow me to do that. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, didn't become a pilot. Uh, but if I fast forward, uh, you know, several years, I... Later on, um, after college, in, uh, where I studied in the U.S., I'd been going to Switzerland and I studied, I studied in, in, um, in Thailand as well. My first real work in which I got to see uh, a way to apply more of myself than just a job was uh, working with, with youth in, in uh, the forests of Oregon and later in wilderness therapy in Arizona. And through that work, what I really got to see was the beauty of, it, of people learning not only something that they can do to make themselves more effective, uh, because the whole job and, and be, being effective as a job wasn't very compelling to me as something to do with your life growing up. But what I saw in here was these were practical lessons that you learned. You, you figured out, uh, you know, if you... Um, if you use this kind of plant in this way, if you use your effort to make this tool, then you, you get these skills that make your life happier. And getting to be part of that and seeing that within people kind of switched a chip for me and said, you know what, that's something I need to find a way to do with my life. Wow. What an, what an interesting background uh, just to start with, but then to have those experiences after college. And so you said, all right, this kind of work uh, moves me. It's something I could see myself doing. There is great value in it. How did you go from that to co-founding an incredibly successful company? <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the road was interesting. So uh, from the, from the uh, working in, in wilderness therapy, I realized, okay, if I'm going to take this step 
forward in my career? What could I do, you know, if I had a family or or to to be able to buy a house and 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 you know afford a life? Yeah, I got to pay those bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. pay the bills, right? Meet the practical requirements of life. Well, the next step was to go into either you know go into the therapeutic side. So to be a, a therapist, a master's in in psychology. Now, at the time, uh, life is complicated. So I was dating a woman in in Monterrey, Mexico, and through that long distance relationship, we had to figure out well to give this relationship a chance. Where do I go? She was uh, she worked for the United Nations here in in Mexico City, so she couldn't move. I had to come here. So I thought, well, what am I going to do that's relevant uh, professionally if I come to Mexico City? And I found this great program, Masters in Counseling Psychology, that I could do here. That brought me here. Now, studying in English, U.S. school out of out of California, uh, and. And doing work with local populations here uh, in in basically the ghetto of Mexico City with youth, uh, like I was working before. Now, to make money on the side, I was teaching English in in organizations. Mm-hmm. And from that, I, I started to not care very much about the English part, but I started to see look, there are really creative people who have a lot to give, but who are in teams or in organizational cultures that are holding them back from bringing the best of themselves to work. And through first as an English teacher, I I thought, well, why don't I use some of the skills, some of the tools that we used in either wilderness therapy or in, in the psychology training to help bring some of these uh, creative energies out so people can really be alive with what they do. And it worked beautifully. It worked beautifully. People bloomed. They, they enjoyed coming to their classes. I enjoyed coming to their classes. And often we didn't look at a single element of grammar. <laughs> right, right. It, the, the, the result was the ability to communicate. It doesn't matter. It's not about the language. It's about the ability to actually get get out there and get the ideas across, right? Yeah, that's a big part of it, getting the ideas across. And that requires also having the courage to share what you really think, Mm. um, to be aware of what you really think by going through a process of of understanding uh, yourself both emotionally in terms of what you really want from life, what your priorities are and what you have to give. And then finding a way also to make that work in a team and to to bring value to an organization. So, yeah. And and from that, you decided to launch this this global this global organization now. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I knew Kim, Kenneth Anderson from the from my studies, and he had already gone into consulting. And frankly, at that time, I didn't even know what consulting was. All right. So I, I thought I was going to be a therapist, a psychologist. But then working in the organization, I thought, well, how can we do this in a way that we actually get to create the, uh, the programs that, are, that have a bigger impact? Sat down with Kenneth, uh, brought him into the organization to do a special kind of course. Company loved it. They, they bought it for consulting prices. And from that moment, Conversari was born. 
Very nice. Yes, those <laughs> consultant price is always a good, uh, always a good place to start a business. Um, sure, sure. I mean, it's a big difference, right? Here, in, oh. if if you're if you're in the box of um, an English language teacher, you're always right. going to be limited. No matter how much value you add to people's lives, that's not going to be reflected in right transferring from that hours hours for pay to value for pay. That's yeah. that's the, the shift. Well, that's awesome. So now you're you're you've got a successful organization. You guys are. Uh, really bridging those cultural and communication divides, helping companies and organizations out. And I know that you have had, in that experience of growing um, your organization, you've had to have had some amazing highs and some amazing lows. Now, I think our listeners, maybe it's because a little schadenfreude, but mainly I think they learn the most, not from the successes, the great ideas, but from the failures uh, so I always ask my guests to take us to the day, tell us the story in that narrative form you're so good at about your greatest entrepreneurial failure, mistake, very, very, very bad day, uh, and what came of it? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and uh, I think there's a few places that could go with this, but there's one. The part is picking one, right? You've been in business long <laughs> enough. Yeah. One that, that sticks in my mind right now, and... and uh, and that was, we, we were lucky enough to work with a multinational company here in, in Mexico, and they liked our training so much that they said, all right, you know, we have our partners in Krakow and in India that would like your services too. Are you able to travel and deliver there? We said, of course, right? Yeah, pay the, yeah first class ticket each way, please. Right. And here's the, the funny thing is, we went to India, we delivered a course, and it was actually relatively straightforward in terms of the, the cultural element. Then we got to Krakow and kind of in a way, the, the, uh, the train came off the hinges. What happened was we, we have our courses. We always like to do them in a, in a way that um, prioritizes experience, right? Because it's great to have theory and to have concept mm -hmm. and all of that, but at least for me and, and for the other, uh, the other now 16 of us at Conversari, one thing that binds us together is that we like to see things in action. So we put that first uh, in our trainings. And we came to our training in Krakow. Now, Krakow's kind of the, the European hub, training hub, for a tech company that we were working with. And you're going to have to help me because, I, and I'm not asking for me, <clears throat> where's Krakow? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Krakow's in Poland. Okay. So it's in the, uh, you know, behind what was the Iron Curtain, of course, there's much deeper, longer history there than just that. But it's kind of the new growth area of Europe where some of the infrastructure costs are lower. Um, but also not as much experience internationally yet. Okay, So we come to Poland and there's participants being brought in from all over Europe and not only Europe, but also Africa and the Middle East. So you have, we're, we're training a group of people that's, that's widely diverse. We start our training the way we normally do. And that's when things start to look a little different in terms of the response. People are, they have that quizzical look on their face rather than the nodding, the excitement that you, you look for as a trainer. 
had that quizzical look, the crossed arms, um, a lot of questions that's, that, that, that don't seem to go away about what we're doing, why we're doing it. And then we start getting the feedback. All right. Get the feedback from our, our contacts there that, yeah, you know, people really don't, they're not on board with this. They feel like it's very American in its style and they don't trust it. And we're like, what's happening? What's happening here? Right. Lowest reviews we've ever received. And, and, you know, I remember walking back that night in, in, uh, it's cold in Poland in the winter and just feeling like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get up and what I'm going to do the next morning to, to make this feel different. Right. And of course, these are big, these are big risks for your company too, right? I mean, oh, not yeah. just this one training going bad. This isn't, this is, these are very costly to put on. I'm sure there are significant risks to the company and career. Oh, sure. I mean, not only to the self-esteem that was happening with me, but to, to the organization. This was our, our first, uh, you know, as Conversati Global, this is our first reach into actually delivering globally. And here we're, we're being faced with this big challenge. If, if mm-hmm. things don't turn around, you know, we will lose that continued contact and that feedback will come back to our biggest client, right? So, right. And of course, the opportunity for more work in that area and yeah, exactly. Yeah, high exactly. stakes. Exactly. So we we met um, we met with uh, with the leadership with our contacts there. We went out to to dinner actually, where they tried to explain what was going on. Um, we started reading and looking more at the cultural uh, elements of this, and part of that we were already doing, but we were missing a key element. Right. Well. It turns out, as as we're as, as we're looking at these things, it turns out that um, the the main element we were missing was the difference in pedagogical styles from one culture to another, and and in this sense, it was shared by most of Europe, an approach that puts theory before applications. So what was, yeah, so what was happening is we were explaining things with examples, with demonstration, with popping people into role plays before we, we explain all of the, the process and then working backwards to develop the process. Uh, well, that tended to work pretty well in the U.S. and here in Mexico. But doing that in Europe, people don't feel open to trusting an application until they understand the process behind it. Wow. And, and even more than that, like people, I remember people, some of them were like shaking to do this and getting angry at us because we were putting them in a position where they had to make a mistake by not being able to do something well yet. Cause we didn't tell them what the goal, what the theory was, what the outcome should be. Exactly. Uh, how interesting. Exactly. They didn't know the criteria. So they were, you know, they hated us because we were putting <laughs> them in that emotional space that was really uncomfortable. Wow. That reminds, gosh, what a, okay. So, so what'd you do? Well, one part of it was really just, you know, it's like when you understand what's going on, that's half the battle. So right. ending that, we just backed up. So the next day we made the adjustment of changing some of the order, putting more of the explanation of why we're doing things and giving more space for that up front. 
And then we did find that, you know, they could debate a little bit back and forth once they got the concept. You know, there was almost, you could see this palpable nod with people. And that was the cue that, okay, now we're ready to put it into practice. And then, and then it, it worked a lot better. That is so interesting. I, at my company, Poplar Financial, we do systems design. So companies come to us because they have a great training like yours or mm-hmm. anything that they want to systematize to make sure it goes out to everybody to keep track of, to issue certificates for, all that kind of stuff. And we, we just picked it. We're, we're licensed and we practice in the United States and we very much work in uh, the HR function for consultation. But we had one client that came to us earlier this year. I think they started January 1. They only have about 20 employees in the U.S., but they have 300 contractors internationally, uh, some in the Ukraine and some in the Philippines. And they wanted us to systematize their, their trainings, their onboarding tools, their performance management, that kind of stuff that they already have figured out, but they wanted us to systematize it, right? And I'm sitting here staggeringly thinking, I'm just like, because something as simple as the order in which information is presented could vary by culture. Like that had never occurred to me. Very interesting. Um, So, so given your experience, you know, our listeners, uh, they run the gamut from, you know, an HR person at a 5,000 man company to, um, uh, you know, mom and pop shop with three employees to their CPAs who have no employees, but just work in a bunch of organizations. What do you think they could take from your story of this, this gotta be a really rough time that you turned around. Um, and what could they apply in their own businesses? Well, that's, that's a great question. And that's what we always try and do too, right? Getting slapped upside the head with an experience like that. What can we do to learn from it and, and, and not make the same mistakes and, and open up new opportunities in the future. I think a key one is, is recognize whether it's a small organization or a big one, you have to think globally in today's business. And, and so much of, you know, as, as both geography and time borders are breaking down, you know, like we're having this conversation across um, across an international border, it becomes so, much, so easy to do that that the flow of work is going to require more and more of that to happen, whether it's a supplier, whether it's a business partner. Globality is a norm that you have to take into consideration. So that's the first part. So then the second part, once you understand, okay, we have to be able to deal across the borders and and the, and and also understanding the differences. The differences, it's like a, the culture is an iceberg, Right. There's the part above the surface, the part that you can see where people speak different languages. They might look different. They might wear different clothes and and have music and food and all of that stuff, right? That's the visible part of culture. But it's the underneath part. That's where the the ships often wreck in business, right? It's the, the values. It's the un, you know, the assumed expectations of how things work there. And, and even in, often in cultures that are seemingly similar, mm. the differences are exactly where you end up with conflicts. Oh, yeah. We, um, not too many years ago, we were just in the southern United States, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, these good old, good old southern states with barbecue. 
And in the last few years, we've expanded nationally, picked up a lot of New Yorkers, a lot of Washington tech people and Californian um, uh, business owners that are, that are, you know, coming up with the next big idea. And we've had to do internal trainings and, and conversations about, you know, when you're talking to someone in Nashville, Tennessee, if you don't ask how their kids are doing and what's up with their dog and, you know, how's, how's business, how's life, how's the weather, you're downright rude. But in New York, if you ask that, they're like, who the hell are you and why are you asking about my children? Yeah. And why don't you get cut to the chase and get work to do here? Exactly. Exactly. Well, we noticed that one. That's one of the things that, that you notice very quickly in Mexico, right? Mexico is very much like the Southern U.S. in that respect, that you prioritize relationships before task, in a sense. And until people trust or they get a sense of you as a person, They don't trust to open up into doing work and to rolling up their sleeves and getting into the fray with you generally, right? So it's a different order of, of business. Interesting. So this is another ordering idea, right? So is it, is it relationship and then task or task and relationship? Or in your story, is it theory or practice first? And right, right. And to... So- To be honest, I'm taking these from uh, Aaron Meyer's The Culture Map. I've got to reference my sources here. But that she, she offers a very useful framework for understanding culture. And we're basing um, writing a paper right now for HBR, for Harvard Business Review in Poland, uh, exactly applying some of those methods and some best practices for how to best uh, do business across those particular borders. Give me the, you told me it was the culture map. Who's the author on that again? That's Erin Meyer. Erin Meyer. She's a link in the show notes down there if anybody wants to look that book up. Um, One of our rapid fire questions we're coming up later is uh, (laughs) what book along with, uh, to go alongside people processes, my book, uh, up on your bookshelf, if you could recommend one, what would it be? I'm going to go ahead and put the culture map there. If you have a few minutes, if you want to throw another one in, you can. (laughs) Fantastic! Yeah, no, there's there's a few that we could uh, we could we could do one one of them that you know to get back to your earlier question too the two really tie together. What is it that you can do mm-hmm. to be more effective working across cultures? Well, one is you're going to make mistakes, so it's more understanding the frameworks, understanding a little bit of of how your own values come into play in the workplace is critical. But then the second part is, is recognizing that there is a, um, an anthropology phase to all of these kind of international or not even international, but all collaborations, all work with other people. You have to take, a, take some time to understand and to listen to the cultural values uh, of, let's say, if you're coming into a new organization like we do, the work you know, to offer services, you have to understand what are the values of that place. And one part of that is the national cultures, but another part is the organizational cultures. You know, Google is very different than working for um, you know construction company out of Texas. Right. So, in your studies, are you going to? Uh, and, and I guess these are some of the books references, but especially for our smaller companies, I'm thinking about some of my smaller clients right now where there often are these cultural shocks for when someone starts with them, uh, or even when they work with a new client in a new way. What would you say maybe is a concrete step they could take um, 
to reorientate themselves. Or this is what I feel like some of my clients would say, look, I can't be everything to all people. I'm just going to do business with guys who are like me and anybody else can go find somebody else. What would you say to someone like that? <laughs> well, I think the world is shrinking in, in some ways. The world is shrinking for for people to be able to, uh, you know, narrowly choose their their business contacts like that. But I, I think it's another important point. You say you can't be everything to everyone. You can't completely change the way that you're wired and your value system. That doesn't work, right? Uh, so, but what you can do is become more aware of it. Uh, and and talk about it. So I think that that opens up an, another important point of, of all the work we do, or I think of all the work that's critical in today's economy, is this idea of understanding through dialogue. Um, we we do it in in terms of building a feedback or a coaching culture, but I think in any sense, if you're going into starting business relationship, one of the ways that you can avoid some of those problems that can come by not talking about it is to say, hey, look, we're starting this out. Uh, th these are some of the assumptions we have. These are the ways we like to work and do business. Is it similar with you guys? All right. And explain things. And even if you don't get it right, you're opening a conversation that difference could be here and it could play a role, but we'd rather talk about it than just deal with it, you know, making assumptions in the background. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I'm imagining, you know, one thing in our company, this is just, this is maybe our, maybe our clients can, our, our listeners can relate to this, but our number one pet peeve, the thing that infuriates my, my employees more than anything is being treated like a vendor. And I know that's a really silly thing because we are a vendor, but uh, we're partners with our clients. Like if a client comes to us and says, we have a problem, maybe it's something we did, maybe it's not, maybe it's just they have a problem. Every single person in my organization will stay late, come in early, put their own money, whatever's needed. We're going to help. Like all you need to do to get my company motivated, anybody who works for me, it's just like, hey, help me and we'll be there. But that alternative feeling is something like, you know, it's not a request for help. It's a demand for service or demand for subservience, like being treated as not a partner, but as a transactional, um, uh, you know, machine that you interact with and, and you put in quarters and outcomes policies, right? Like, yeah. and I've never figured out how to really explain that to clients, but the clients that that love us the most and, and spend the most time with us and get the most out of us are those. And I, I don't want to be like, Hey, if you don't treat us nice, we're not going to work with you. But, but I, I wonder if there's something that we could do at our company and, and our listeners could do at their company to better define the, the type of relationship or the, or the way in which you communicate to, to make that better. Yeah. Well, that's a, it's a, a beautiful and important point you're bringing up. And, and we deal with this from a few different directions. One from our own experience is we are also a vendor that sees ourselves as a strategic partner. And even, you know, sometimes the word strategic seems, you know, cold and distant. 
but that really sees uh, see ourselves as a as, as part of the team, as part of the organization. We we work so hard to understand the the language of an organization. We we speak the the, the, the languages. You know, we know how their KPIs work, how their business works, and then from there we work on the human side. But sometimes, not all organizations value or even key people in roles value those relationships in the same way. Sometimes they're trained or they, they have a value system that says, keep vendors at, uh, at an arm's length away, keep them unbalanced uh, so that you have negotiation leverage. Right. That's, that's a different type of psychology to deal with. And then there's another kind which says, you know, coming back to culture, not everyone builds trust at the same pace or in the same way. So you often have organizations uh, that was also similar in, in uh, dealing with, with Europe. The trust happens a little later, right? There's, there's, there's this image of um, coconut cultures versus peach cultures. And the coconut culture is one that has, when you first come on when you first uh, make contact with people from a coconut culture, they seem hard and, and, and unsmiling and distant. But then once you're in, like you can, you really have a trusting relationship. You can make demands of each other. Peach culture, like the U.S. is, is we're quick, you know, you sit down in the airplane next to somebody and you're sharing, sharing your story, like within 15 minutes, you know how many times you've been divorced and all of that. Well, right? But then there's this kernel of privacy in the middle, you know, after that conversation happens, you walk away and you never see each other again. And that's kind of expected in a way. But for somebody from, let's say, Germany, from Poland, from, from many other parts of the world, they feel you know, hurt by that because they expected now we're friends. I think those similar type of values um, also work in, in the vendor relationship in the sense that sometimes it takes longer, but it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody wants to maintain this arm's length negotiation position with you. It just takes really close listening. And I think listening, not just to the words, but, you know, to the atmosphere and to everything else that goes into understanding the values of a place. That's outstanding. I'll tell you, I do, I've done about 150 of these interviews. And I think what you're saying is startlingly unique. I'm, I'm super impressed. I, um, our interview, our, our episodes normally run about 30 minutes, guys. I know we're coming up on the end of that, but we're going to keep going. Um, I think Thomas here has some amazing insights. If uh, um, if you're having trouble, go ahead and pause. Come on back on your ride home. But um, I want to keep on diving in. So, so Thomas, I'm going to ask a few more questions that weren't on our kind of pre-list just because I, I'm so absolutely intrigued by what you're saying. Um, in this idea, in these ideas, this happens a lot in HR and culture talk. There are these overarching concepts like what you've brought up of, of understanding each other's cultures and making these, um, um, taking your actions differently to have a better outcome. At our company, at, in, in what we advise, nothing exists unless it's a process. Because having a different mentality or a different insight is a one-off event. So while a C-suite executive may hear what you're saying and be able to change their behavior and eventually that filter down 
through the whole company. For those who are thinking about this in terms of how can we improve our processes, our actual business day-to-day functions with this insight, do you have any ideas? Like what could be the, the, the steps on implementing even the most basic bottom low-hanging fruit for these insights you're providing? Well, I think there's, there's many things we could talk about. The first that comes to mind is actually a project that we're excited to, to be beginning right now, where we're working with one of the uh, uh, big six financial services consulting firms in the world to help them develop a coaching culture. Now, what that means is uh, coaching culture is as really the two parts. It's the culture part and the coaching part. So like many, like many organizations, they struggle to get deeper bonds of trust internally as a model then of a relationship that they take out into their clients to build more um, trusting, deeper relationships, just like you were talking about with vendors. Now, that has to start internally, but it's really tricky if you're an organization that's based on individual performance metrics and so what you have to do is we're, we're coming in and, and we're looking at some of the process elements. How do you, everything's related in, in, in human resources, how you measure somebody's uh, performance, how you measure and, and, and make the determination, how well are you doing your job matters a great deal. Because for instance, if you want a culture where people are taking the extra time to listen to each other and to help people across uh, across functions, but the only way that your performance is being measured is, let's say, the you know the revenue that your area or your team is bringing in, uh, minus right. costs. Well, what you're going to do is this person's going to internally or externally sometimes be looking at the clock and finding ways to get out of those conversations where they're helping other areas. 100%. Yeah, we, we, we talk about there's a one of the major companies we recruit from, we want their best and brightest to become ours, Yeah, has incredibly skilled technicians. But one of the measurements upon which they are rated is mm-hmm. their average call length. Lower is better. Yeah. So if you can dispatch a call and get a positive rating in a minute and a half, you, uh, you're considered good. But if it takes you five minutes to get the same happy response, you're considered low-skilled. And that just the measurement of that performance is informing the entirety of your interactions with your clients on a service call, right? Exactly. And that's how someone like Zappos.com goes against the flow to say, no, look, we weren't, we're going to scrap that metric and instead highlight narrative examples of calls that last several hours because they're building a deeper level of trust with our customers. Uh, so that's the kind of advisement, you know, in the work we do. Uh, the work we do is, is both training and consulting in the sense. So we start in, in this project, we start by coming in to do a cultural diagnostic to understand these are the values of a company. We do some focus group interviews. We do some, um, you know, some, some forms that we send out and, and we collaborate that data to get a real picture of this is how this company works in terms of a culture. Uh, 
Then from there, we say, okay, these are your goals that you want to see. Okay, where are the real value drivers in that? And from that, we design a way to measure the return on investment of the programs that we do. Okay, because that makes it a lot easier for an organization to go to their board of directors and defend their programs against other competing calls for budget. Because you can say, well, okay, it costs this much, but you know, through this and this driver that we're going to measure and, and see a difference in throughout the course of this program, we're going to see this return. So then we do our delivery. Um, where we go in and, and see in this case with, with the culture coaching culture project, it's really establishing some new, uh, some new metrics, team-focused metrics, so that the role of coach can be seen also as a way of apprenticing for a formalized leadership role. And then it becomes more uh, enticing to people so that if you're able to get some to be known as a, as a good coach that some people, somebody wants to go to for advice and help, well, you're halfway into a promotion of a, to, to be a, a formal manager. And that tends to motivate people a little more to take some t- extra time. Sure. I think one thing I'm going to take and, and kind of crystallize for our small, small business clients uh, or listeners, you hit it very briefly with your Zappos example. If you're in a position in your organization where you're trying to influence culture and you don't have the time or budget to really do a deep dive, and we'll talk about how maybe you could do that later, but for now, narrative examples are one of the keys, Thomas, you mentioned in in, in our previous conversations. I would assume the process would be something like find a an actual event that occurred inside your company that is an example of how you want it and tell it in its full breadth as a story. Is that basically what narrative training would look like? Well, absolutely. That's one way to do it is to, to mine your own archives of, of your history. And often in the founding moments or in, in other key moments in an organization's history, that's, you know, there are these kind of parting of the ways that reinforce values. Those are gold. What we do, though, is, is also recognize in what medium or how do you come across those stories? Because having a leader or having somebody tell them is great, but you can't always be there. So what we're doing now is uh, we've, we've built a studio here in our office, and we create videos of those stories also so that you, know, you put them on YouTube, you put them on your website, you share them internally and externally, and those become artifacts that really build the strength of the company. That's now that's getting into my world. We have a video studio and an animation department and it's all about turning those ideas and concepts into something that can scale and happen the same way every time. That's our world, systems and process design. It sounds boring, but it's very much especially when it comes to imparting culture about making sure it happens that way every time and therefore you can tweak it and see improvements over time have a we call it we call that having a process as opposed to that it being lucky that someone asked the right person about that story right right and you know a story is so powerful you know you can you can you can put together bullet points and and powerpoint decks 
all day. But if, if you go back and you remember, well, how many of those do stick around in my memory and, and come up in important moments when I have to make decisions? They don't, right? But a story does. It has that kind of hardwired magic to it that, that sticks in our memory and that, that comes out, especially when we have to make decisions. So it's critical to do that. And often how we connect those dots whether you're also trying to influence a customer or, or, or anyone, uh, getting the story right and then supporting it with the data so the rational mind can kind of calm down, uh, you know, that's really the key. Thomas, you've dropped so much incredible value today. Let me go on to our normal stuff and just kind of figure out what's got you looking forward. A lot of our business owners are going through changes. They're excited about stuff they're rolling out in the next six months or so. What have you got coming up that's got you uh, excited getting out of bed, rolling into work every day? <laughs> well, there's a few things right now. It is the, the launch of this um, major culture, coaching culture uh, initiative. That's really beautiful to see as, as we're going to see as we roll this out to, to hundreds of managers, um, a, a major impact, hopefully, at the level, uh, both the, the personal level for, for people who are working in this organization, and I think also for the effectiveness of the organization. There's another one, though, too, um, you know, bringing back to this example of our failed <laughs> Our, our learning experience, let's put it that way, training in Krakow, going back in a couple of weeks now to to do to lead a training in in Warsaw with a uh, with a, yeah with with a um, uh, an organization there, and as we're writing this paper, and it's really an opportunity now to see how well can we put into practice what we're preaching in our, in our theory, in our, in our recipe or cookbook for people to do out there? So that sounds awesome. If you'd have said Warsaw in the beginning, I'd have known where it was. Just saying. Uh, yeah, in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, Thomas, let me ask you this. We have listeners, like I said, of all sizes from all walks of life. What should trigger in their mind as a reason to reach out to your organization and you? Um, what's something that maybe they're going through or where they're at in their entrepreneurial journey that says, you know what, we should check this guy out. And once they know why, how should they contact you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, we're the, the beauty of who we are at, at Conversari is we're a group of, we're 16 of us. Uh, from very different backgrounds, we have anthropologists, we have uh, a doctor in in, uh, in in business sciences, we have backgrounds all across the gamut, and the, the the idea is, you know, with that kind of diversity and also national diversity. You mentioned we have Ukrainians, we have people from from Europe, Mexico, U.S. Um, the diversity that we have, we are forte is really bringing tailor-made solutions to a variety of different problems uh, that or challenges that, that people face at the human factor level. Uh, from big organizations usually are the ones who have budget to invest in, in those kind of, like you said, deep dive program development type of things, and, and they keep us going. But we also love to work with uh, with with startups and, and with um, acceleration stage organizations 
We're, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Google development mentor also. So we work with people at that stage to say, okay, your business, you're, you're focused right now on the technology part. But remember, there's always two sides to the business part. I mean, to the human factor side and how that adds value to a business. One is how you deal with people internally. Often as people go through rapid growth with VC funding, angel funding, they're scaling up quickly. Mm. Well, now you as a founder, you were dealing with your team of five and, and meeting, you know, in Starbucks or in your co-working office. Now you have a team of 20, 30, 40, you're not meeting with the same regularity. Some of those are industry professionals that are different to deal with. You have all set of new challenges. We'd love to, you're not alone. We'd love to listen to those, see in, in what way we can help. Um, we just start with a, with a cup of coffee virtually or in <laughs> person to do that. Um, and, then, and then we go from there. And the other is also understanding whatever business you're doing, you need a human being to make a decision uh, to either use or to purchase your product or service. And that decision is going to be motivated uh, through, you know, the complex emotional world of, of human beings. So the user experience, the customer experience is an integral part of everything. And those are really the two areas that we see trigger points that lead to conversation with us. So customers and how should they reach out to you? What's up? How should they find you? Oh, that's that's great. So website is the easiest. So conversari.com, C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-R-I.com. Or on our website, uh, on our uh, Facebook, Conversari Global. Um, those are the easiest ways. You can see my own personal bio in, in, on the website. And uh, my email is in there too, thomas at conversari.com. And happy to have a conversation like this or anything else. Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. I think you uh, provided a ton of value to our listeners. Thank you for coming out. Appreciate it, uh, Remy. It's always great to look at these issues that, are, that we're all facing. And, and thank you for hosting such a, a great forum where these ideas can come out and be shared with the world. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Thomas Veeman and Conversaries.com's uh, co-founder. So many value bombs. I'm, I'm, we'll definitely check out the show notes where we're going to have some links to the books he mentioned, his website, uh, his social media. The ideas of culture influencing everything, of course, is, is something we all know, but just being able to, to put the concrete ideas there from his story of uh, his time in Poland, theory before practice versus in the United States practice before theory, uh, staggeringly good information. In the meantime, check us out at poplarfinancial.com. You can find more about the corporate services we provide. Peopleprocesses.com. Subscribe on there. Get updated when we have new interviews just like this one, along with some subscriber-only content, uh, including things like our onboarding checklist, our People Processes Getting Started guide. We'd love to share that with you. You can also find us at Poplar Financial on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn and Instagram. I'd love to see you all on there. Now it's time for you to go out there. Have a great day and get your work done.